Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trunarne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 105 of the podcast, the topic is the future of child abuse online. Our guest is Chris Wexler, CEO of Crunam. In this conversation, we talk about the business of removing digital toxic waste from the internet using AI to identify child sexual abuse material, or CSAM. The host of this podcast, uh, Trun Arne Unheim, PhD, is the author of Health Tech, Rebooting Society's Software, Hardware, and Mindset, published by Rutledge in 2021. Future Tech, How to Capture Value from Disruptive Industry Trends, published by Kogan Page in 2021. Pandemic Aftermath, How Coronavirus Changes Global Society, and Disruption Games, How to Thrive on Serial Failure, both published by Atmosphere Press in 2020. Leadership from Below, How the Internet Generation Redefines the Workplace by Lulu Press in 2008. For an overview, go to tronsbooks at trondandheim.com books. At this stage, Futurize is lucky enough to have several sponsors. To check them out, go to futurize.org slash sponsors. If you are interested in sponsoring the podcast or to get an overview of other services provided by the host of this podcast, including how to book him for keynote speeches, please go to futurize.org slash store. We will consider all brands that have a demonstrably positive contribution to the future. Before you do anything else, make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurize.org, where you can find hundreds of episodes of conversations that matter to the future. I hope you can also leave a positive review on iTunes or in your favorite podcast player. It really matters to the future of this podcast. Thank you so much. Let's begin. Chris, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? (laughs) I'm doing well. So... Chris, how um, does a person who loves baseball and, uh, you know, is in advertising, you know, for straight up, uh, you know, American nice, nice things to do, (laughs) you end up with something uh, very serious as your new profession. Um, Before we get into that, what, you know, what's, what what was your upbringing like? What were you, what did you care about? How, How did you get to... Your past career in 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 Martech, and 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 then maybe we can get to where you are now. Yeah, it's it's actually the the same answer for kind of both questions you brought up there, in that um, I I was I grew up in uh, in Minneapolis, um, kind of straddling uh, suburban life at a church and uh, going to inner city high school. In fact, just uh, it's the high school just down the street from where George Floyd was murdered. And so I got to, at an early stage in life, really understand that everybody's life is very different. Um, And I had parents, um, we had parents, that were really focused on service um, in different ways. My mom was a geriatric nurse to help uh, uh, seniors stay in their homes longer. My dad worked in um, health law, helping the... Um, it, for the for the government to help uh, lead to better health outcomes for the population, and then my brother ended up starting a nonprofit around human trafficking, which is really where I got exposed to 
uh, understanding how children are victimized on a regular basis um, and how, you know, when you talk about human trafficking, it's, you know, I think this, the conservative number is 30 plus million people are enslaved today and 70% of them are women and children. And so uh, here I was going along into my corporate career. And uh, also my sister runs a, like a, a hospital in rural Honduras, bringing healthcare there. So I was the black sheep working in corporate America. I, um, I had, um, I'm an intellectual kind of led person. That's kind of my mindset. And I started on Capitol or Capitol Hill briefly, and then wall street for a while. I like to say the aptitude, but not the attitude. And I've, when I fell into marketing in the, uh, around 2001, 2002, it was a great intellectual challenge for me. Um, I loved the fa- the blending of creativity and objectivity and the people are really interesting. Um, but I really missed having a purpose. Uh, and so when there was an opportunity to start a company that really not only could take all those skills that I've kind of accumulated over my life and put them to good use, but actually make the world a better place, uh, how, how do you end potentially fundamentally alter the lives of uh, abused children all around the world. I mean, it, it was, um, it was an easy transition to make because I was just compelled to make the world a better place. So, you know, that, and that's, I think a lot of people in our organization where we've seen, we've looked into the face of evil in this space and like, we have to do something. And uh, that's why we're here. It's interesting you said that. I thought I was going to have to make a more tenuous transition because it's obviously your expertise, curiously, is invisibility online. Yeah. So, so that was the transition I was going to make. I mean, literally, you said that you have, you have basically, you're responsible for a billion dollars in ad spend. Yeah. It strikes me that some of the sites we're talking about here, you know, on the industry side of uh, child abuse, but also on the industry side of pornography, which we'll also get to. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming they also do have some ad spend because there's competition within, you know, within, within the space. But but I wanted you to maybe briefly before we get to some of the nitty gritty, just address the visibility online. And I, I'm going to serve up a couple of things I just found here. And, and I wanted you to comment on, and maybe you have better statistics than me, but I just quickly uh, you know, sure. browsed here and I figured out that um, if you look at the market of basically most trafficked websites in the world, I found one site here that says as of April 2021, and I don't know how reputable this was, uh, it said that the two porn sites are in the top 10 most visited sites. I saw mm-hmm. another one. Uh, from visual capitalists, I don't know exactly where the data came from here, but said that, uh, so there were three sites they had in mind there. So X videos there, number nine, you know, globally on par with Yahoo in the US, number 10 Pornhub, a Canadian site ahead of Netflix and Reddit and way ahead of CNN, for instance. And then 14th uh, was a site called X. XNXX, which is, which is a Czech site, and then place 27. These are global internet statistics. X Hamster, a Cypress-based site. And any all of the, the above uh, are still larger than TikTok, PayPal, or even Walmart. So this was what I just sort of f- found quickly here. Now, does this re- reflect what, uh, what the reality is, is out there? Yeah, it really is. I mean, I, I think it's it's been an interesting thing to watch the evolution of 
the internet, it's really a lot of the uh, innovation in the internet has been driven by the porn business because it's a reliable business. It's let's face it. Sex has been uh, a commercial enterprise, pretty much what everybody says. It's the second longest prof- or world's oldest profession. Um, and so it's not a shock that it's big. And, you know, when you talk about those sites, um, there's really two main companies that own most of those, like X Hamster and X Video and XNN are all owned by uh, one parent company. And Pornhub owns uh, RedTube and a bunch of others. They're actually huge in the space. Um, they actually uh, control like 60% of the market. And so you have some really big conglomerates that control a large amount of uh, the business out there. Yeah, it's interesting because as when I was a marketer, I was marketing for the world's some of the world's largest brands, names you'd recognize, Volkswagen, Harley Davidson, uh, Microsoft, and uh, when I'm working for them, I'm fastidiously trying to avoid sites like that. Right? I literally, you know, I, early in my career, uh, we were. I'm going to not name the company just to save them, but it was a frozen pizza brand targeting moms. And I get a call from a client going, why am I on hotcoeds.com? And I went, I don't know why you're on hotcoeds.com. And so I went and figured out why the ad got, and I found this crazy, I and the team found this crazy chain of events that we thought we were buying on one site. And then they kind of Jay-Z chained it into um, less reputable sites. Um, And so we were one of the first ones kind of applying brand safety filters to make sure that our brands weren't um, funding and next to this type of content. Um, But as the system has become more and more automated and more and more uh, uh, less transparent, more opaque, um, it's really hard for, it got harder and harder for advertisers to avoid that. And particularly when, content was showing up on Facebook and Twitter and, you know, sites that you theoretically would think are safe. And so we had some brands that just wouldn't be on anywhere that had user content. Um, And so I was really evaluating it on the other side. I was like, how do I manage this brand's reputation by making sure we're not against negative content? Now, you know, I'm, I'm kind of taking that, that part of what I was doing, taking it a logical step further and just going, let's get rid of content that is damaging to everyone involved, um, the children that are abused to make it, the people that are consuming it. Um, it's truly, a tr- it creates a tragic cycle of violence. And, you know, the, the human brain is hacked in interesting ways by technology. We, we are used to looking around our peers next to us and, and kind of assessing what is normal. And uh, what's different about, and we've seen this in you know, um, Islamic or extreme right wing radicalism. We've seen this in a lot of different things online that you find these online communities where your otherwise unenforced reinforced behavior is reinforced by an online community. And you see that with, um, the abuse of children, um, and particularly distribution of child sexual abuse material or CSAM is what we call it. Um, and so, you know, when you, when, if you're alone in your basement and you're, you're strangely compelled to look at this either because you were abused as a child or, you know, whatever kind of drove you to that, you feel very isolated. But if you have a community of a thousand people that you're sharing with and talking to, all of a sudden it normalizes that behavior and it actually accelerates abuse of other children. And so we want to, we, we really want to put ourselves in the middle of that 
and break that cycle. So if this content is really hard for you to find and these communities are hard to maintain, um, we're going to literally make sure that there are kids that have never been abused in the first place. And that's, that's our goal. Um, I just wanted to stay for one more second on this innovation sure. angle, because I think w what you're pointing out, which I've also read, is that even in the beginning of the internet, like beginning as in like in the 90s, uh, sex sites generally and discussion sites, you know, certainly of, of all kinds, they were the drivers of the initial mm -hmm. internet traffic. And it doesn't surprise me that you say they were also some of them somewhat innovative in the sense that you know, because they did have these large audiences, they were able to do those kinds of experiments that e-commerce sites of other kinds only could get to five, ten years right. later in the cycle. Um, and the only reason I'm staying with this is I just imagine that when you're trying to tackle this from either regulatory approach or all kinds of ways that we're going to talk about in a second, you're faced with not underdogs, you know, hidden under rocks, you're faced with formidable digital competitors that have honed their art, you know, for, for 20, 30 years. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I think it's, yeah, agreed. Um, the, the adult market is really sophisticated. Um, if you think about it, uh, it was the first really clear business model for online video. I mean, it was really clear. Nobody wanted to go outside and, you know, go into an adult bookstore and buy a videotape or a DVD. I mean, it, it, the, the benefits were there immediately. Netflix, I remember when Netflix switched from DVDs to streaming and everybody's like, they're crazy. Um, it wasn't at all clear. And so, you know, but the business model was really clear there. You know, I think what's interesting here is that it's, I think, less the legitimate producers of pornography that are the problem here. It's um, open um, user forums of content. And so if you look at the porn hubs, the ex-hamsters of the world, you have a lot of users uploading video. And, it's, and they have um, not had the tools and, and frankly, probably not the will because profit, profit motive um, to properly screen and identify who are in those videos. And if those people are there willingly and if those people are um, uh, of age or not. And so what you have is, you know, because I, I think people misunderstand how people make money on the Internet. Most people go, well, you put something up and you make a million dollars. And the truth is you make a quarter of a penny at a time. Every time the screen comes up, you make a quarter of a penny or less than that. And particularly in adult sites, the, the, the revenue per page is even lower. And so the, the pressure to, the economic pressure to have one more page view, one more kind of um, train wreck of a video that might attract attention that might get 10,000 views versus 2,000 views, um, it pushes companies to make decisions that they're not properly screening this content. It's actually a, it's a and so that's not just the porn hubs and X videos of the world. That's also the Facebooks and the Twitters of the world and the Googles of the world. Um, because a lot of the algorithms are tied to engagement and it's proven over the, over hu just human behavior that sex sells. Um, and unfortunately um, there hasn't been enough safeguards for children in that space. And that's really, and not just children consuming, but children being active participants. I mean, you should, the headlines alone are, are, 
are unbelievable. It's like, you know, stepdaughter and this and that. I mean, there's a whole genre of incest videos. Um, they're all quote unquote fake, but some of them aren't. And they're then what, what are we doing? Uh, we need to be better about that. So I I wanted to ask you a little because this this concept uh, when you talk about it becomes very easily extremely moralistic from uh, from the sense that you sort of you, you know a lot of people that come out on this topic in public are are just enormously dismissive of the entire practice as if sort of this was something that didn't go on at all and and also right. something that was completely entirely illegitimate i i just mm -hmm. wanted you you know not not to give your personal opinion if you don't want to but just uh try to illustrate for us sort of the dif the difference really uh within this industry and and also uh, tr try to address uh for me whether you know i mean is it possible to have a normalizing view on some adults are actually consuming, you know, let's face it, sexual content yeah. online in a, you know, legitimate way versus, uh, you know, and where would, you know, would that is that possible to do when when you know how complicated it is to investigate how how your the content you're watching was produced versus you know these sort of excesses that you talk about that so clearly even the companies that we just talked about when asked about it will of course say no you know mm -hmm. we we are right. trying our best to get rid of that content so th there's a whole continuum here i'm yeah. imagining well you know uh we as as a company and uh, we're we're not opposed to legal pornography. And I think that that's the, 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 the pivot here is consent. Um, if the adults are do are perf the performers are consenting to what's going on, that's protected speech. That, that is their right. Um, you can consume it or not, but that's their right. And it, you know, no matter how you feel about it morally, uh, that is a legal business. Um, but, um, when you have a, just like any other business, if you have a, a product that is, that may lead to dangerous outcomes, you have responsibility as a company to take care of that. And uh, whether that's an adult company or just a social media company or a file storage company, that if, um, and I think that that's the, the kind of hard thing to understand about the spread of um, CSAM is that it's not just on these adult sites. Obviously, that's where the biggest fire is and the most visible element is. But um, there's a problem on any cloud storage site because people are then sharing passwords. Um, every bit of the internet infrastructure that you and I use legitimately every day uh, is being, a small portion of it, thankfully, very small, is being used by these predators. And so we, as a, as Kurnam, we didn't want to come in this on this as a moral issue. We wanted to come in this as a, a, a legal issue because it is illegal to hold this content. And, um, and you know, we don't want to be moral arbiters. That's not our role. Our role is to save kids, um, and protect kids and protect companies from these predators that are using their platforms. And so, um, I think that's an important difference is that this is there, there's kind of clear legal definitions um, in the U.S. It's 18 and under. The kind of the lowest common denominator globally is um, prepubescence versus post. But we we really work on an 18 and over under um, um, way. And so what we're we're doing is 
giving these platforms a tool that they can really go out and make sure that their content, whether it's adult and um, obviously harder to discern, or just um, you know any social media platform that doesn't curate out all nudity, um, to make sure that uh, that these platforms are not being used by predators. And the, the the good news is the technology is getting better and better. This is a we have a kind of a giant leap forward. Uh, up until recently, the um, the standard the technology was out there. It's this great bit of uh, software called Photo DNA by Microsoft. And essentially, when an image was found and and verified by someone, then they could put a fingerprint on it. So if it showed up again. You didn't have to look at the image. You go, oh, there's the same exact same kind of pixel fingerprint. So we know that that's bad. And so it was, you could catch, you know, an estimate right now anywhere between five to ten percent, maybe two to ten percent of what is out there. But it never found things that were created yesterday, or in the case of live streaming, in the moment. And so uh, our founder, two of our founders, Ben Gantz, who is a child sexual abuse investigator in the UK. And Scott Page, our, our uh, chief technical officer, real, said there, there has to be a better way. And so they worked with the UK government way back in 2015 and 16 to do a project pro bono by themselves on using machine learning and deep, um, deep, uh, deep learning and machine learning on confiscated images by the UK government to have a have use computer vision to identify. Um, uh, uh, non unknown images and uh, what and they've they've been refining that technology and it's been in use by law enforcement. It's highly effective, and we're bringing that out to the broader um, the broader world. And it works on images and video. And we're working right now to put it into a live streaming um, context. So uh, someone you know that is you know particularly a one to many platform like a Twitch or something like that could have um, have our our software essentially um, monitoring not what is being said, not um, just looking for specific behavioral patterns, relative body size, states of undress, genitalia, and alerting the right people to stop and pull off that content off of those platforms. And so it's a technological solution to a human problem that's been exacerbated by technology. And so um, it's definitely not the end-all, be-all, but it is uh, leaps and um, leaps ahead. And the great thing about it also is not only does it kind of break the cycle of distribution of this content, this, um, but it also um, helps, you know, we've configured it in a way that the people right now, the way this comes off of a Facebook or a Pornhub is someone's out on the internet and they run into it, they go, holy cow, and they flag it to the company. So one person, at least one person, seen it. Often hundreds, maybe thousands. Then the company looks at it. So another human has to look at it. Then usually another human has to look at it. And then you go, "Yep, that's something we need to take off our platform," and they take it off. Is so that are are those kinds of systems currently in use apart from the system you created? So the the sites we were just discussing, the biggest mm-hmm. ones, because I I want to ask about that because I could imagine that if the biggest sites are onto it, you know, presumably if the, the public knows what those companies are and they can kind of, and there, were, there was a case that I think we will talk about where Visa and MasterCard got onto, you know, got onto this mm-hmm. discussion in December 2024 for Pornhub specifically. Yep. And that, you know, generated a, a reaction by the company. And I'm sure that they do have some filters now. 
mm-hmm. uh, either prompted by that or at least they they claim they even had had some of those filters so but but you know usually the argument would go you know if you if you do that to the most public sites then the activity just goes deeper underground what, what about that argument well i do think that's true i i I've, it and particularly with the internet because there are dark dark corners of the internet um, with the dark web, et cetera. But I will say this. Um, I think letting perfect get in the way of progress is a really dangerous mindset in this space. Um, one of the things that we see uh, when we talk to people that have been um, convicted of abusing children is they often have years of consuming this content before they act. Um, and they find it relatively easily on forums, on, on, you know, on social media, fill in the blank. Um, and then they get deeper and deeper into it. If it's not easy to find in the first place, less people will get on, on that kind of go down that dark path. And so, um, while this will, this, like I said, this isn't the end all be all, it won't eliminate this 100%, but what it does is it takes out, um, a vast majority of the distribution. So all of a sudden it's much harder to find. So you have to be more dedicated. It allows law enforcement and other companies to focus on the problem areas. So it actually should free up uh, resources, stretch, stretch resources around the world that do investigations into this kind of thing um, and allows them to focus on uh, focus more and more. Cause right now there's just too much out there for them to investigate everything. And so um, mm-hmm. if we can eliminate the, if we can separate the wheat from the chaff and make it easier for them to understand what's going on, it's going to help on that level too. But so how are you providing this? What's the business model? Are you essentially providing uh, this to these sites for them to install on their own servers? That's the idea. Yeah, because, um, you know, often some of these, um, this type of um, service might be done in the cloud, et cetera, but we can't do that because this is illegal content. So we literally, we can't have, um, a company in, uh, let's say France, send this content to our servers in the UK and then, um, I'll send it back and going, yep, nope, that's, this is what it is. Um, that's technically trafficking in, in CSAM. So, uh, we, we have a on-premise solution that allow that what all the other nice thing about that for the companies is that allows them to immediately quarantine this content. So it, it isn't going anywhere. It can't get intercepted. It, it's, it, they can the minute that our system triggers and goes, this is problematic. They can pull it out, so they they can understand. Does that go to my security team? Does that go to my higher um, level of trust and safety team? Um, is that going? To, you know, am I notifying people to take this person off our platform? Um, it allows them to immediately take steps and measures to um, to to mitigate the problem. So essentially, I'm, what I'm understanding is you are a version of a cybersecurity company. That's really what you, you are, because presumably uh, a lot of the technologies are very similar to what a dark trace or, you know, or, or some other company engaged in filtering content, you know, gets involved with. Yeah. I mean, I think we're um, a, a very different kind of virus com- uh, protection company. I mean, it's a, it's a behavioral virus, right? Um, yeah. And so we, we actually talk about it in terms of digital protection. So mm-hmm. um, protecting 
uh, the consumers so they don't run into it, protecting employees so they don't have to deal with it, and protecting children so they aren't re-victimized by the distribution of this content. Talk to me about the consumer angle to all this, because you know, so far you, you did mention sort of when you are on a site and, you, and, and users would flag it, so that's a consumer angle to it. But mostly the software of yours is, gets installed by you know, social networking sites and any, any sites that, that have user-generated content, I'm, I'm assuming. Yep. Um, what about on the user side? Is there something that individual users should be aware of when it comes to this content? Are there avenues that are tip lines or hotlines to to flag this kind of content without getting flagged yourself? Yeah, there are. I mean, one, uh, you know, if you run into something that you find problematic, immediately uh, notify the 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 site that you find it on found it on. Um, there's usually a reporting mechanism right there. If not. Totally, you know, that also happens. If not, um, in the U.S., it's the National Center for Exploited and Missing Children, NECMEC. Right. In, uh, in Europe, there's InHope. There's, um, there's several, you know, pretty much every, uh, every country has some kind of reporting hotline. Um, and th- those, are sa- those are safe places to report this. Mm-hmm. And that's important. Um, you know, if we do our job right at, at Kurunam, Hopefully, people aren't running into it to report it um, because that's it's tr- it can be very traumatic if you run into the, this content because um, uh, some of it is just unspeakable. Um, but when you run into it, report it, um, report it to the company, and report it and report it to a, a call line. Just grab the URL, and uh, and uh, that's often a, a good way to don't grab the image. You don't want that on your hard drive, um, but grab the URL. Grab the URL. Um, what what is so you you are obviously not a big tech company. What are the giants that we sort of uh, alluded to earlier, and kind of the giants of the internet, the the ones that are either owning massive domains that are user generated sites, or they are cloud providers, or you know whatever they are. So you know the Facebooks, the Google, the Microsofts, and and a bunch of other companies that are engaged in various places in this digital value chain, even, I guess, telcos or whatever, you know, you're running some sort of service that distributes uh, content in some way. What are those generally doing uh, about this problem? Most of them, and it's really been something that's um, cropped up in the last, you know, in earnest in the last five to, you know, six, seven years. Uh, they're all investing relatively heavily in um, what is largely being called right now trust and safety or integrity practices. So often it's um, ex-law uh, enforcement um, technologists that are coming in and frankly just a lot of people that are trained into it um, that come up through the ranks uh, that are dedicated 100%. And these are some amazing people. Um, they are dealing with the darkest most awful parts of humanity. We're talking about CSAM and, and child sexual abuse material right now, but they're looking at beheadings and they're looking at, uh, they're looking at hate speech and they're looking at, you know, all this awful things. And so, and they're, do, they, they want to, they, they're tasked to make, keep these communities healthier by having this off of there. And so, you know, if you look at like a Facebook, they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars every year trying to fight this globally. Um, and even if you look at companies like, um, Dropbox, uh, they've been investing heavily into this space. And so I think, um, a, they recognized, 
I think they all recognize the problem coming out of the 2016 U.S. and the Brexit elections. Um, I think they saw that. Um, unfortunately, the regulatory environment wasn't they, – they were very nervous about the regulatory environment in those administrations. Um, and so now that there has been a change in leadership, there's, I think, a, a move to be a lot even more proactive than they were. They just had to be quieter about it the last four years, unfortunately. So where is Krunam now in its development? And you know, uh, are you you're ready with a with a product that's uh, kind of go to market, or are you already distributing this in some way? Well, we're in use by law enforcement, quite a few law enforcement um, organizations around the world, and we're in late stage testing with several large um, clients because we've only really been a public company since December. So, you know, typically a, a, a software service uh, on-premise solution like ours is, you know, a 12 to 18-month sales cycle. It's a long sales cycle. But um, what we're seeing is the market's really hungry for kind of the next stage in, in uh, digital protection of children this way. And, that, you know, that's been really heartening because um, obviously I'm talking to you because we want more people to, you know, and more companies to be active in the space. But, and so we're just trying to kind of get the word out. But um, the up the um, the initial response has been really strong, and frankly, the test results in in these kind of uh, different use cases are have been unbelievable, and so uh, that's been exciting because you know when you look at something like uh, this for a large social platform, finding the content is one thing, but also if we had too many false negatives of finding images that actually aren't CSAM, but it's flagged as CSAM, that's as problematic to them because that's good. That's sullying the name well, of users. Destroying your, yeah, you're destroying your own business basically. Yeah. Exactly. And so, you know, that's why, you know, when we look at our, our, our classifier, it's, we focused very strong on identifying, but also having a very low false positive rate. And that's really critical. If, um, People listening to this are in the business of uh, wanting to get a better handle on their content, no matter what. They can obviously go to Kronom and, and contact you. But what are some other resource uh, sites or communities where, where this sort of very specific sub uh, subtopic of security and integrity, where is this discussion happening? Well, I mean, there are some great organizations around the world. Um, I've already mentioned a couple. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children has been a real leader in this space in the U.S. and um, is closely tied in with the U.S. government. So they're, they're strong. But there's also several, um, there's a whole ecosystem of nonprofits. One is our partner, Not For Sale, uh, which is an anti-human trafficking um, uh, nonprofit that um, fights this around the globe. Um, but there's company, there's uh, there's companies and there, there's an ecosystem of companies like Thorn and 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 Two, uh, Two Hat and Griffi that um, uh, uh, SafetyNet that are really working to provide solutions in different ways um, uh, in this um, element. And uh, you know, to be honest, um, where the community conversation is happening, it's interesting. It's fairly distributed. I think it's it's an uncomfortable conversation for a lot of people because I mean, frankly. I don't want to think about children being abused. You don't want to think about it. Your listeners don't want to think about it. But unfortunately, um, at our attention to this problem is part of the solution because right now, by not paying attention to this, um, there were 64.63.4 million incidents of this identified last year alone 
around the globe. Um, and that's an unbelievable number of pieces of content, considering how porous the identification system is right now. Um, and so, you know, for us to be aware and not afraid to talk about it, um, I think is really critical. So I, I, I applaud you for having me on because it's not easy. Well, I wanted to ask you another question, which, I mean, you, you've looked into this for, for a while now. Have you come to any conclusion when it comes to the motivation of the actors that, and I'm not talking people who discover this and sort of like, oh, you know, I, I'm talking people who willingly either produce this stuff and know that they are producing stuff that's not only just, uh, you know, illegal or, I mean, is it that they don't understand that it's, it is illegal or are the benefits just a, the, the profit motive is just too high? Or what, I mean, if you go into the mind of the, the people who do engage in this business, even peripherally, what, what's going through their head? Well, I mean, I, I can't, say that I'm a, a perfect expert on this, but the, the research that I've read, there's a couple paths. Uh, one is um, to get more content, you need to give content. It's a trade, it's a barter system. And so within literally a community of predators, you almost have, I mean, it's, you have to provide content to get access to other people's content. And so there's a motivation there to get more. And so you actually act to get access. Um, unfortunately, with COVID and the rise of live streaming, we're seeing organized crime get active in the um, CSAM space because they're already trafficking people and children, you know, either for labor or for prostitution. What they've realized is that um, they can meet, you know, meet people on a messaging board somewhere, exchange Bitcoin, and then have a live streaming show done for them. And those poor kids are literally... Um, held captive and traumatized for the pleasure of paying customers. Um, and so it's all the more reason for, uh, for live streaming, you know, cause that's a very difficult um, platform to police. Um, you know, uh, if that platform, if we don't get a handle on that, I think organized crime is going to move in even more heavily. And then it's all about profit margins. And I mean, Obviously, there are some uh, cultures where um, the age of consent is different, um, but uh, but we're seeing kids, uh, prepubescent kids, which no community is okay with around the globe, and they're being um, abused in this manner. And so that's definitely something that uh, it's pure profit margin or, you know, just something broken inside them, unfortunately. And so I think it's really important for, um, for us to find ways to not only stop those kind of things, but document and, um, and get to the authorities to break up what could be, you know, what is a growing, um, form of organized crime. Uh, well, to that point, um, in this podcast, we look a lot sort of to the next decade and beyond. What, what do you think will happen to the CSAM sector or the content that, that this represents? Are we, are we getting to grips with this? Is government, law enforcement, and, and these tech solutions, is, is there a tech fix here? You know, is it just better image recognition technology or is it self-regulation by the large industrial conglomerates or... Uh, or can we do something about the incentives? Is there an ethical fix? 
I, I know that uh, the see something, say something mantra is, is sort of strong in certain circles. Does that, you know, does that emanate across this, this, this problem? What is the Absolutely. future look like? I'm I'm actually going to pull the you know when I think about the future I I've been lucky enough to be involved in the internet pretty much since the beginning um, I was literally in college when I got to see this thing called um, the Netscape browser where I could see an image oh my gosh it was so exciting um, and so I've I, I I've been wa- paying attention and and watching technology all along and I think like any technology that comes into culture it takes about thirty years for us to figure out what to do with it which considering the pace of change of technology is pretty terrifying that it takes our human brains and society 30 years to figure it out. But the first 10 years were really, what is this thing? We were kind of trying to figure it out. Um, the next 10 years was, Ooh, look what we can do and really growth and um, opportunity. And that was Google and Facebook and social media and YouTube and all, um, Netflix, all these great things. The last 10 years of adoption typically is us reconciling societal norms into a new technology. What is the, and so I think we're, we're, we probably were delayed a few years, but we're in that third decade of adoption where we're figuring out how to have healthy communities. So beyond CSAM, we're figuring out how do we best, you know, one-to-one communication and one-to-many communication online isn't going away, but we haven't found ways to have those societal norms. And so I think, Initially, you know, you're seeing self-policing. The whole cancel culture argument is a version of self-policing. It's people trying to apply cultural norms going, hey, that's unacceptable on this platform. Um, but And so you see the people trying to do it as a culture, but that's really hard, particularly in digital. I think you're seeing companies trying to self-regulate. And I think they're, they're earnest in trying, but it's obviously in conflict sometimes with their... Um, their shareholder needs and and the responsibilities of the market. And so there's tension there and, and I, and government has been lagging and continues to lag. And so I do think we'll eventually get to codified regulation, but I think it's really critical, particularly for companies with a, and they're investing as though it's critical to make sure that they have healthy communities, not just large communities. And so that's taking away um, death threats. That's taking away cyberbullying. Um, that's taking away hate speech. That's making sure there's no CSAM. We're one small part of that process of refinement to healthy online communities. And, and you know, you go, is it this? Is it that? Is it that? I think it's going to be a conglomeration of all of that as we as a global community um, find ways to um, to um, to establish norms and and actually enforce them. And it's, you know, it's not, it's not as easy or fun, but, and, and it's actually much harder than, Hey, plugging the pipes in are easy, but making sure the water going through those pipes is, you know, clean and safe to drink is much harder. And so for a tortured analogy for you, but, um, you know, that I think is the future of the internet in the next 10 years. It's one of the reasons why we wanted to start Kurnam because we wanted to have, um, a real, we're a public benefit corporation. We're focused on, um, solving the problem of CSAM, but also other intractable problems within the internet. Um, and we're partnered with Not For Sale, the n- nonprofit. Um, we wanted to make sure that as we built the infrastructure of healthy communities, 
it's not just built by engineers, but built by a, a multi-stakeholder approach. Amazing engineering, which we have, but also advocates for survivors, advocates for um, for businesses, because we care about, you know, a bit, you know, you can solve this by shutting down a website, but that's not going to solve anything. It's just going to push people elsewhere. And so finding the right balance so people still enjoy these platforms, but they're not, you know, people aren't getting pushed off of it by hor- aberrant behavior of a very small percentage of the population. It seems to me that this balance between privacy and filtering is something you've thought about for a while, and there doesn't seem to be kind of a one-liner that takes care of it, right? <laughs> it's, no, it's an evolving no. target. Yeah, and right now, I mean, I see why people care so much about privacy. We we live in, I think Scott Professor Scott Galloway says we we li- there's a whole um, area of surveillance capitalism that they make money off of watching us and and paying and, and doing that. And when, when you find, find out that that's why Facebook is free or Google is free and you're not paying for that service, it's, it's an icky feeling. Um, a lot of people, once they find out, they go, well, I don't want to pay for it. So I guess I'm okay with it. But, um, I think we're seeing a class separation here because there are certain people that have the means that are like, okay, I'm going to pay more. So I have my privacy, but there's going to be a lot of people that, you know, that's just not going to be a possibility. And so um, having base level protections on these open communities is going to be really critical. And it's, it, you know, on, it's a human's rights issue. It's a women's rights issue. It's a child's rights issue. Um, um, it's a racial equity issue to make sure that these communities are, are safe and clean. Um, but uh, part of that is, you know, having some kind of observation going on. And the other, we're also finding the the kind of the negative slash positive side effects of our public discord being discourse and public square being owned by private companies. Um, and uh, with either a profit margin or an agenda, you know, fill in the blank, whatever you want to believe. And it's probably a little of both. Um, cause they're humans, any, or what, what's Groucho Marx say? I, I don't want to be any, cl- any part of any club that would invite, would have me, um, uh, that humans are inherently hard to deal with. And so, uh, but when you add a layer of profit on top of it, it becomes even more complicated. And so, um, it's, uh, I, d- I, I am very nervous about the move to zero trust. So, the signals, the telegraphs of the world where it's complete end-to-end encryption. I think that will help a few people, a very few people, and it will harm millions. Um, and so I'm worried about that move. And I understand why the why people have reacted that way. But it's going to protect criminals and predators more than it's going to protect, um, you know, me talking about recipes with my mom. Um, and so, is it going that way? Do you think that uh, all communication of some, you know, most communication, sensitive communication, good and bad, will be encrypted very soon? Uh, I think that that's definitely a uh, that is a trend that has been happening. More and more has been moving to end encryption, um, and particularly um, in pri- very privacy focused areas. So, Northern Europe, Germany, um, that's been a big push. Um, and you can understand why in some of those states, because, uh, particularly Germany, that the history of the East German state was not, you know, has, has an overhang, um, uh, surveillance has a understandably negative connotation. Um, 
I do think it's interesting that most of the places we're talking about kind of pure freedom online are also, um, how do I put it? Privileged. I mean, it's, it's a privilege to worry about what people have to say about you. If, um, I'm struggling to, um, even have a mobile phone, let alone, uh, minutes to use it. I'm less worried about, uh, if I have the, have a, a paid app to make sure that nobody can listen in. And so, Again, on a on a on a kind of social justice level, we're going to have to find the right balance. It doesn't mean everything should be observed. Like you know, talking you know, working with your bank is private. Talking to your doctor should be private. But um, putting you know, essentially, what is a virus scan for for hate and abuse is not a is probably the next you know is 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 a reasonable thing. But what's reasonable to me is unreasonable to somebody else. And so that's why I want to have debates with, you know, that's why I'm actually seeking out a lot of privacy experts, um, because I think that that's a critical balance that we need to find as a culture. Interesting. This uh, is a, a tough topic to cover. It is hard to kind of wrap your mind around and understand why it is happening at this scale. And it seems like the problem isn't going to go away in a year, even with solutions like yours rolling around, mm -hmm. you know, uh, this will be here for a while and we're going to have to deal with it in the, in the next decade. Yeah. It's a bit of an arms race and, um, the good guys needed better arms. So there you go. <laughs> That's why we're here. That's right. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. It's been wonderful to have you on. I uh, wish you best of luck. Thank you for having this obviously, um, difficult conversation. And I really appreciate you, um, allowing me to talk to your audience. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So you have just listened to episode 105 of the Futurized podcast with host Rolana Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of child abuse online. In this conversation, we talked about newer approaches used to limit child abuse online using AI. My takeaway is that child abuse online is a growing problem and there is no simple technology fix. We are dealing with those who push the limits of pornography, one of the most adaptive applications on the internet. Keeping a watchful eye and reporting abuses as we come across them seems like a sensible approach. Supporting businesses such as Cronome who use AI to fight it also makes sense. It is encouraging that there now are clever people technologies and organizations helping law enforcement with this endemic problem. Regulating the players whose business models touches this area more vigorously would also help. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, subscribe at futurize.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 28 on the future of child trafficking episode 96 on practicing multimodal AI, or episode 16 on the future of human perception AI. Futurized, conversations that matter.